Welcome to Bridging the Cyber Divide, the podcast series brought to you by CyberArk that examines how cybersecurity underpins our digital economy and is critical to its growth. Our podcast guests from both sides of the public and private divide will discuss the key themes that impact our developing digital economy, the unique challenges and opportunities for Australia's emerging digital ecosystem, and how cybersecurity is at the core of our digital future. We will discuss key issues, including securing a fast growth digital economy, the rapid expansion of IoT capabilities, connecting and securing critical infrastructure, and the role of securing access to critical systems and information. From a framework perspective, we ask what is the role of security legislation and certification in Australia, and delve into what skills do we need to build a robust cybersecurity industry. How can we protect citizen data and information, both at a public and private level? And what is the status of Australia's emerging digital economies? Get ready to discover how we can bridge the cyber divide with CyberArk. Hello, I'm James Riley. Welcome to the Bridging the Cyber Divide series brought to you in partnership between Innovation Oz and the Permissions Access Management Specialist, the cyber firm CyberArk. This is episode one, Securing the Digital Economy, and today we'll be talking to Robert Deakin, the Director of Cybersecurity at the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, and with Thomas Finkenscher, Regional Director of CyberArk. Welcome, Robert, and welcome, Thomas. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Robert, I'm going to start with you. We're going to start with a very broad question. It probably sounds ridiculously broad, but... When we're talking about the digital economy, and we know that this government has focused a lot of attention on building a digital economy, what are we actually talking about? I think there was a tendency some years ago to equate digital economy somehow with e-commerce, but it's it's way more than that, isn't it? So what are we talking about here? Yeah, I think um, there's an exponential change in what the digital economy actually means, or data actually means, or the information age actually means. In the past, I think you know e-commerce was more like the bridges, specific pieces of, of transport infrastructure. And then I think over the last, maybe since the release of smartphones, people have started to realise there's a whole ecosystem around the transport network, if I keep using this analogy. But really, this next phase we're entering is, is not about where you're going, what car you're in, what plane you're in, but why are you going? What's it all about? What do we use data for? How do we perceive the world, how to react to it, how do we apply resources to it. So the, the digital economy is moving much further up that data pyramid from you know, data, information, knowledge to wisdom at the peak. And people are beginning to realise that data in itself doesn't have any particular virtue and neither does wisdom. So it's that whole construct. And I think there's intellectuals who talk about it in a very, very broad metaphysical sense. And then there's engineers who talk about it in bits and bytes and row hammer bugs and very specific <laughs> things. So it's everything and nothing. It's like love, hate, war and peace. Um, and I think we're on a journey to really discover uh, what it is depending on your perspective. Okay. And look, I, I guess even the term digital economy and everything we meet around it has huge implications, obviously, to people's daily lives. There are technical implications around how we design the frameworks that will drive it. And there's regulatory implications about you know how we develop that society that we want. So to Thomas, Given, as we said earlier, huge emphasis on digital economy by this government, there were a year ago, I think this month or last month, the federal government issued its digital economy strategy and there are a bunch of budget measures in October in that strange post-COVID budget. So 
when we look at that big picture, are we ready here from a regulatory standpoint, from a technical standpoint, from a skills standpoint? How's Australia tracking, you know, to implement this in the way that we want? Yeah, good question. And uh, I think every day when you open the news feeds and newspapers, you hear another announcement around, you know, digital economy and, and, and the importance of it. And especially when you come in, coming out of COVID, this is obviously the new mantra right now. But there is also a question around intent, which is absolutely there, the intent to basically have a leading role globally in this space versus the capabilities. And I think there recently there has been, I think it's the Harvard School, it's a, the Belfast Center for, for Science and International Affairs. They actually had this sort of study around national cyber power index 2020. In Australia, an interesting position because they looked at 30 countries and Australia was fairly high up on the intent, which I think eighth place, but the capability was 16th place. So there is a divide between, you know, what we're trying to do, what we want to do, but what we can do. And I think when you, when you look at capability, the problem is around, is there enough people with the skill sets in country? So in other words, do we have a domestic cybersecurity industry, for example, that can actually surround the whole digital transformation necessities? That's a skill set topic. Do we actually have the ability to commercialize ideas here and send them to other foreign markets and make and create a business out of that? So there are questions around that. And I think there's, there are big issues that need to be tackled here. So again, intent is good, very positive, but capabilities are questionable at this stage. Okay. And I guess certainly from a government perspective in terms of the amount of effort to build digital government services and to drive that side of things, I guess the intent certainly is there. What do you make of that, Rob Deacon? Uh, look, Australia is in a brilliant position if we can harness the will and the capability can follow. And that's you know a historical precedent. Once you get the will, it can happen. So if you look at other nations like Israel or Estonia who've had sort of existential pressure on them and they have adapted and they've built digital economies. And Israel, for example, has a strong export economy in cybersecurity. But there is certainly short, medium and very long-term trends and factors. You know, we're a $1.6 trillion economy. I think the government's, I think their budget base is about $470 billion. We spend $34, $35 billion on defence, but we're spending considerably less on cyber. So even the, the two or $300 million that we give to entities within home affairs or other is really small when you compare with the economy and where value is generated. If you look at where the government gets its value from, taxpayers pay about $220 billion into the government. Is that money coming back to protect them as consumers in the cyber world? Businesses, 87 or, or say, say 90 billion coming in, are they getting money back to protect them? That's the other three quarters of the economy. And is the government providing the resources back into that and to position us in the future? And we are in a very good position because we have strong institutions, which is a, a key factor in the way the world is happening now. If you look back historically to the Middle Ages or other periods where people have had trust, whether it was the Quakers or the various traders in the Mediterranean, they were able to make enormous fortunes because disparate communities could trust them. And Australia is in a position to be trusted. And the third factor, so I suppose the first factor is a middle, middle power. We actually have potentially the balance sheet that we could do it. The second one is really you know, that opportunity. The third one is Australians surprisingly trust their government, right? So about 76% of people trust the government. We might not like this government or that government, but in general, we think the government will, will. So we actually have the ability to harness ourselves as a nation to do things 
things that authoritarian states can do because they have a level of trust, but not this different type of trust. <laughs> but other nations like Britain and the UK have demonstrated are struggling to harness their national power towards that future. All right, let's explore that just a little bit. Just before I go to you, Thomas, Robert, from a regulatory perspective, we're sort of arrive at a time in history where tech giants are more powerful than they, you know, than, than ever. Even right. in the heyday of, uh, of IBM, I don't think they wielded the kind of, um, you know, broad economic power that they do today. From a regulatory perspective, when we look across things, you know, as disparate as privacy to the use of data to consumer data rights, have we got the rails in place or is this a work in progress? Everybody everywhere is making it up as they go along, you know, from Beijing to Mogadishu, you know. So we, we, like others, are having a crack at it. You know, Australians have a crack at it. We don't need permission from people to do things, but we're also very pragmatic. So all that is needed is to make sure that that constant pressure to improve the integrity of our organisations is a civil discourse around it. And I think we sort of almost, we could almost get there. We're almost having civil discourse. I think it's, it's much worse than a lot of people would like, and they don't want backroom boffins discussing it, but shifting some of the, the agendas that are talked about towards the middle, and this podcast goes towards doing that, getting people talking about some of these fundamentals, not about fashionable things of the day, but you know, fundamentals of how geoeconomics works, the pressures that are on us, and why strong institutions are important. And therefore, we're having a good crack at it. We're putting things in place. We're leading with CDR, for example, and lots of other initiatives the government's taking, constant give and take between the different agendas. Okay, so Thomas, if you can share, I'm going to ask you, you know, the similar questions, are we ready for this? But I wanted to, given that you're operating in this space and have been for a good part of your career, given the pace of the rollout of connected devices or just connected parts of the economy, it would seem every different layer adds another layer of complexity. Is that a reasonable assumption? Are things becoming so complex that we will find it difficult to pull back? I, I certainly believe they're becoming increasingly complex and it's a multidimensional problem that you're actually running into. We talked about the more technology you use, the more you need the skill sets behind it to basically master the technology. And technology itself is not sometimes easy to use in, in many ways. I mean, we're trying to improve user interfaces and making it simpler. But behind those nice, shiny interfaces, there's a lot of complexity that you have to, to deal with. But I mean, the, the next problem is there are so many interfaces now coming into play and we all use multiple apps. We, we're trying to have variable devices. We, we have sensors everywhere that actually somehow collect data. And then the next thing which has to do with digital transformation is integration, right? So we're trying to connect things. We're trying to connect systems everywhere. And those systems are not always managed by the same people and not adhering to the same standards. So that's a level of complexity. Around that is the data management piece. Who is collecting data? When and where? Are you supposed to use them? Are you allowed to use them for certain purposes? So there's, a, there's another problem in that particular space. So privacy rights and privacy protection policies that you have to set, regulatory compliance for certain industries that you have to look into. So there's, as I said, it's multidimensional. And from that perspective, it doesn't get easier. I think there's, there's many industries who are trying to push ahead and they're trying to actually transform. But you know, once they go into that space, they realize, oh, okay, we haven't thought about this, we haven't thought about that. So we can't go at the speed that we thought we could. So yeah, it's complex. So let's just drill down into that a bit. I know that you've got 
some interesting ideas within the construction sector of use of digital twins and doing interesting things in terms of that transformation. But Thomas, can you just give me some examples of where industries in Australia have done some interesting things, where we potentially have some kind of, if not competitive advantage, certainly some kind of a a will to get things done and where we're lagging? Yeah. So you mentioned the construction industry. It's a it's an interesting one. People believe still it's like, you know, hands-on, brick and mortar, you know, very physical. But I think that has changed a lot. If you look at progressive organizations in Australia and, and overseas, what they're doing, they're actually building a lot with data. They're building what they call digital twins before they physically build a building. And I always use the term, you walk, when you look into one, some of those new high-rise buildings or office buildings, you actually walk into a vertical computer. Because in there, everything is full of sensors, recognition systems. You might walk into a meeting room and the meeting room recognizes who you are. So it recognizes your identity because there is a camera or a scanner somewhere. And then with that comes access to a screen and that, you know, displays certain information. And it's all great, right? So it's because it's, it's all user interfaces and it's, it's easier for us to do our job. But at the same time, do I want that? Do I actually, has someone asked me whether they can take a picture of my face? Has someone asked me whether actually, you know, I, I want to have certain services provided to me automatically? So that's, that's the challenge. I think there's a lot of interesting technology developments. But as I said to you, we also need to think a little bit harder around what that means from an individual consent model, privacy model perspective. And it's happening in, in pretty much all industries. Um, construction is one of them. The financial services industry has tried to provide um, improved user experiences, easy access to services for many, many years. But uh, as I said, you know, the, the trust and the, the privacy and the consent model is a very important one. So Robert Deakin, I guess we're still talking on the regulatory side of things, but I'm very interested in the use of, well, in particular, digital ID. I mean, there was a time in this country when the notion of a digital ID was seen as such an invasive invasion of privacy or potential invasion of privacy that uh, it mobilised forces against it. But really, ID is kind of a fundamental to how we will work in the digital economy. And there's so many different types of identity. I mean, you have an identity when you go to the coffee shop. The person might not know your name or whatever, but you have a presence and some credibility and attributes that the barista, sorry, being a Melbourne person, of course, I have to use that example, <laughs> knows you all right? versus a machine identity versus something you've seen before, you don't know what it is, and then obviously your personal identity and there are attributes that can't change. It is complex, but I need to sort of suppose challenge the framing of these things as being complex and hard because they aren't, you know, having been a grumpy old engineer for 30 years and, you know, having had multiple breakdowns trying to deal with the cosmic horror of cyber (laughs) security, you know, I've now really moved to a point of epiphany realising that most of the muggles just don't care, right? And the issue isn't the complexity. So if you go and use the products that Thomas has or many of the other leaders have, the problem is solved, right? The problem is the complacency and the adjustment of people to the change. So no one's, you know, attacking us specifically at the moment with kinetic weapons, but pensioners on the Gold Coast are being romance ransomed weird. So have we got the balance right in terms of where we're putting our, our effort? And so have we got the balance right in relation to identity? My experience has been that people have already traded away their privacy and identity for convenience. 
we have a hope in Australia that we could provide the convenience with the appropriate checks and balances, which I don't think we'll ever they would ever get in some other countries. In some of some nations, that identity and privacy has been taken away by techno authoritarian states with no choice. So you know, I think there's two points here: is the complexity can be solved, the identity issues can be solved, the security can be solved, but it costs, and the issue is the cost, not the complexity and embracing that. And therefore, what are the benefits for people? And people who are aware of the sorts of progress that some of the techno-authoritarian states have made with privacy invasion and the incredible things that are there, if they were used with more virtue, um, could be of great benefit. But they need governance and strong institutions so people can trust them. So I guess we can always make things secure. I mean, you would probably agree as an engineer, you can lock things down, but it becomes so impossible to use and create so much friction. It's kind of less than ideal. So it really is a balance. Well, when people tell me they've got zero risk tolerance, I say, good, I've got an infinite budget, right? It's always a balance. But there the questions is that the technology is somewhat of a distraction. The, the brilliant engineers around the joint can solve this, but there are things that are, we need to trade off to solve those. So Thomas, you must make it feel good that you've got a ringing endorsement, if not uh, you know, of technology. Well, they're, they're a well-established player, right? So they've already got their street cred. That's right. Um, you know, if, if not CyberArk specifically, then, you know, technology more generally. Well, what do you make about this issue of balance between reducing friction and making things more secure, but also reducing friction and still protecting, you know, things that we value like personal privacy and personal information? I think Robin made made a valuable point. You know, he said problem is solved. I mean, as technology-wise, yes, we have a lot of technology available and it's probably a lot of technology, enough technology to solve immediate issues. I agree with that. But at the same time, there's also a question of risk appetite. Risk appetite at a corporate level that organizations have. You know, how much risk am I prepared to actually go into? And yes, there's a balance between the amount of money you're going to spend on, you know, securing everything versus, okay, I might have a very low probability to actually run into a cyber breach that is material for my business. So there's a trade-off there. I agree with that. But at the same time, I think there is also a lot of organizations that actually haven't even done the basics. So we can talk about risk appetite, but they probably don't even know what they're exposed to today. And I've seen that a lot. And I think that is, that's a problem for because we talked about digital economy at the beginning, right? If you look at critical infrastructure in Australia, you look at things like water supply, electricity supply, you look at traffic systems, public transport, ports. I mean, there's lots of critical infrastructure. And if that that gets disrupted, seriously disrupted, that is a problem. And I think the risk appetite for things like that should be very low because they're called critical infrastructure for a reason. So yeah, we have to get, I mean, I understand the balance and understand the availability of technology, but I also believe that in some organizations, it's, it's underestimated how big the problem is. So I think, again, I'm agreeing, but I'm coming at it from a different perspective. So the human factors of risk management and risk taking. So in hardcore engineering, where you're doing failure mode analysis and there's very structured engineering stuff when you're building electricity plant or uh, pumps and water gas system or something, engineering and risk management in that area is so different from the way risk management is handled in cyber. And it is still stuck in this archaic risk likelihood treatment new risk which does not work for engineering applications. It might work for decisions around HR or even some broader OH&S stuff. But if you're talking to an explosives engineer at a mine around how they do engineering and the systems, and so we are lagging fundamentally 
in the security domain around risk management. And even words like risk appetite, they're still engineering stuff. It's not the things that have been talked about in the corporate box at the cricket games. Okay. Secondly, on top of the lack of engineering risk management is coupled with the human factor of executives with 20, 30 years experience in their particular industry and they don't recognise the step change, right? They're like Montezuma, totally unaware that Cortez is coming. When we do all this boffin talking, they just say blah, 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 acronym. You know, it's never happened in the past. And so some of them are waking up, but we need to move from a situation now where we've just got a win-lose dynamic. We just lose, right, to at least lose-lose, which I think, you know, sort of focus to lose-win, you know, fundamental shift in strategy. Okay, so let me ask, we haven't spoken about COVID, we haven't spoken about the pandemic. I think it's kind of seems universally agreed that uh, COVID has acted as an accelerant on digital transformation or certainly the appetite for transforming things. Is there a bill yet to be paid in some of the work that's been done in the last six or nine months in accelerated rollout plans of digital processing? I think it's the opposite, right? So COVID gave us a glimpse of Cortez coming over the horizon. And it actually broke complacency in a number of points at the macro level. So telehealth, if you know, a few things like that. It showed the government and the community, oh, hang on, the government can tell you to stay in your house and people will. Like there's fundamental shifts like that. So maybe we could do some other things for the greater collective good rather than the individual pursuit because the individuals who are making value out of it aren't sharing that wealth. I mean, that's the inequality gap that everyone's railing about around the world. So it's, it's highlighted a lot of gaps in systems, in, in trust, in different ways, in different communities. And, you know, cyber's had some great up, uplifts and some other shockers. With You know, I think you had Chris on talking about all the problems with, with COVID attacks previously. What do you think, Thomas? You're someone who gets around the industry. You're talking to a bunch of customers on any given day. Where are we up to? Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's been a bit of a wake-up call because we've been forced to uh, do things differently, right? Um, again, we're coming back to digital transformation, people using digital services, but now they're using it from different environments. So in the past, you might say, okay, as long as you're in a certain environment, my office building and my secure network, you can access certain services and it's all fine. But now we very overnight, we're shifting people into their home offices. And uh, I keep saying no one is really an expert in, in um, securing their, their home routers and uh, really managing the settings in a perfect way. So all of a sudden, you actually access these same, same services or critical services from, your, from different environments, which completely shifts the game. So the architectural models need to change. People need to think about how they actually think about delivering services with security in a completely different context. And Robert mentioned things that... Yeah. I, and I would challenge that again, right? I would say they don't need to think about it. That's the wrong framing. What we need to do is trust the experts, right? And that's the problem is a structural problem is that you're not allowed to have an opinion on how the optometry association should do eye testing. The optometry association would do that. Because cybersecurity has failed to protect the community, that we haven't built enough trust where they just go, okay, the wizards will do it for us and we will trust that they will do it, right? Because the last thing, I rail against security awareness because it doesn't help telling people they're under attack, right? What helps is an actual solution or a mechanism or something they can specifically do, they can subscribe to or, or they can click on. To and be fair, with, it's, it's a bit of a, uh, to be fair, it's a bit of a movable feast in terms of the, yeah, the system processes that people use. Well, it's a classic Red Queen gambit, right? It's the Red Queen situation. You have to keep running as fast as you can to stay where you are. 
Right? And, and that's, that's what hasn't been recognised, I don't think. I'm going to uh, start drawing this to a close. I wanted to sort of finish up with a comment from both of you, just in terms of the digital economy and, you know, progress that's being made towards the integration of all those different systems across the economy that, that we need to do. Are we optimistic about how this is now progressing? What should government be doing more of in this space and what should they stop doing? I'll start with you, Thomas. What do, what do you think? Well, short answer for me is I, I am optimistic. I start with you know being a citizen who uses uh, government services myself. I think it's uh, it's it's great to see that we actually having simplified services right now that I can use from my mobile device. I can do them very quickly. I don't have to bother to go to an office. I think that's that's positive. I think you know at state level there's lots of initiatives in that space. If you look at public transport and the improvements around public transport, you know, how you pay for it and things like that, there's lots of stuff that has changed. And I think I'm positive about it. What I would say is that in some cases, people need to think a little bit harder around, especially in my industry, around the security elements of that. Because if something happens and we had things happening in, you know, service NSW is a good example where breaches happen and data gets lost. That's where my trust is diminished, right? And then I'm getting a little bit reluctant and say, I'm not going to sign up for that service. Maybe I'm not going to sign up for a digital identity that the government Australia Post is offering me. So I think that's where we have to do a little bit more work and a bit more structure and maybe communication. But overall, I'm, I'm positive. I think it's moving in the right direction. And Robert Deacon, what are you just to round out this conversation? Look, I think if there was one thing to get people to meditate on, it would be that trust doesn't scale. I know only Sith deal in absolutes, but trust doesn't scale. And what I mean by that is the way that humans interact at a sort of a lower social level doesn't work as you get systems of systems of systems. And therefore, we need things that help us develop trust at higher levels. So whether that's, you know, various types of identity, various types of secured systems, various types of certifications, better risk engineering, is all those additional mechanisms that we need to put on top of normal human way of trusting, you know, a repeated pattern of predictable behavior, that doesn't work when you're getting tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people and adding then billions of devices. So think about whether, you know, what do we need to help scale trust in a digital economy? Because it doesn't scale using normal human sort of psychology. <laughs> All right. Look, thank you very much, Robert Deacon, Director of Cybersecurity at the ACCC. Very much uh, appreciate you joining us on this Bridging the Cyber Divide series. And thank you also to Thomas Pickenshire, Regional Director at CyberArk, ANZ. I think it's been a great discussion. I think there's going to be plenty more of them as we move forward with this. Thank you again. Thank you. My pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this episode of CyberArk's Bridging the Cyber Divide podcast. For more, Keep tuning into Innovation Oz's podcast or go to cyberarc.com.